Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The fishing industry has regulations to help protect species from overfishing. But what are some of the consequences? It leads to consolidation in the fishery, which we've seen. What I've seen is a reduction in the number of vessels and not an increase in the ecological output of the ecosystem. In fact, I don't know the last time we heard good news from the Gulf of Maine. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll learn about how fishery management has shaped every part of the industry, from ecosystems to small business owners. And we'll look at the building backlog at immigration courts. As cases get older and remain on the docket longer, they generally become more complicated. Plus, what we can learn from the life and death of football star Aaron Hernandez. They're going into these sports and, and they're putting their lives on the line. They didn't know that for a lot of years. They knew they were, their knees were gone and their backs were gone, but they didn't know they were going to lose their minds as well. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. A humanitarian crisis is unfolding in the Central American nation of Nicaragua, forcing thousands to seek asylum in neighboring Costa Rica. About a quarter million Nicaraguans live in the U.S. right now, the vast majority in California and Florida. New England is home to just a few thousand Nicaraguans, including a handful in the state of Vermont. Lauren Matalon found a man who wants to return home but is afraid to. He's currently living legally in Montpelier, weighing his options as chaos appears to be growing in his home country. Here's the story. Javier Rodriguez's life is in limbo. He's 39, a professor of environmental sciences, and the married father of a four- and six-year-old. His wife and children are still in Nicaragua. Leaving them's the most difficult decision I've ever made, he says. Rodriguez left Nicaragua for Vermont in August. He has friends here and says he had to leave quickly after criticizing the government to fellow professors. Soon after, heavily armed paramilitaries began showing up at his house yelling death threats. In Nicaragua right now, criticism of the government can be fatal. Every day, people are kidnapped, arrested, or they just disappear, Rodriguez says. A recent UN report says the government of President Daniel Ortega has created a climate of fear that uses systematic repression of dissent. In a move that surprised no one in Nicaragua, the report's authors were immediately kicked out of the country. My supposed crime was being at four marches, Rodriguez says. Since April, human rights groups say at least 318 people have been killed, all but a few by police and paramilitaries. Rodriguez says Nicaragua has become a police state. Today in Nicaragua, even thinking against the government is a crime that they call terrorism. There are educational ties between Vermont and Nicaragua. Students from several high schools, Randolph Union High School, St. Johnsbury Academy, and Stowe High School, among others, have traveled there to live with Nicaraguan families, visit schools, and soak in a fascinating culture. Those trips are on hold for now. Rodriguez hopes that changes. 
la maldad de, del gobierno de Nicaragua no va a durar para siempre. Nicaragua's evil government won't last forever, he says. Rodriguez is one of 30,000 people who've left the country since April. About a thousand have begun the process of asking for political asylum in the U.S. But Rodriguez says even if he gets asylum, he wants to return home. To help rebuild democracy, he says. But he doesn't think that'll happen tomorrow. In Nicaragua itself, simmering discontent with repression boiled over in April. Since then, university students have led marches to condemn what Vermont Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy says is a government that's, quote, widely known to be corrupt. In addition to those killed, there are hundreds jailed as political prisoners, and hundreds more have just vanished. Police are now going house to house looking for students, but students aren't backing down. This government is finished, says one. For Javier Rodriguez in Montpelier, that's all he's hoping for. But he's glad to be in Vermont right now. I've met the best people in Vermont, he says. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lorne Madelon. The backlog of cases in immigration courts is steadily increasing nationally, and it has been for years. In the immigration court in Boston, which handles most cases in New England, the backlog is spiking, up 76% between October 2016 and this past July. That's the second largest increase in the country. Shannon Dooling from WBUR takes a look at some of the factors behind the jump and who bears the brunt of the longer wait times. It's 8.30 on a recent morning in Boston's immigration court. The federal prosecutor for the Department of Homeland Security pushes a cart loaded with case files into a courtroom. She wedges the cart between a wall and a desk and heaves a pile of paperwork onto the tabletop. Another day full of master calendar hearings is about to get underway. For an immigrant who's fighting deportation or applying for asylum, a master calendar hearing is their initial court appearance. It kickstarts the rest of their proceedings, and they usually walk out with a date for their next court appearance. In Boston, those dates are being set further and further out, thanks to the nearly 27,000 cases now pending. The growth in the immigration court backlog has a dramatic impact on our clients. Sarah Sherman-Stokes is a Boston-based immigration attorney and a clinical instructor at Boston University School of Law. She says a bigger backlog can mean longer wait times. According to TRAC, a national immigration database at Syracuse University, the average wait time in Boston is around two years. That's gradually been ticking up over the last several years. Sherman Stokes says that's a problem for many of her clients, especially those seeking asylum after experiencing tremendous amounts of trauma in their home country. The longer amount of time that passes between the incident that happened and them having to retell it in a courtroom in an adversarial setting, the more difficult it becomes for them to do that with accuracy. And even small inconsistencies can be the basis for an asylum denial. In September, Attorney General Jeff Sessions set a goal of increasing the number of immigration judges in the country by 50 percent. The thought is that new recruits will help tackle the massive backlog of cases that continues to grow nationally. But simply adding more judges might not be enough to put a dent in the backlog anytime soon. Dana Lee Marks is an immigration judge in San Francisco and the former head of the National Association of Immigration Judges. While there is now an almost frantic effort to increase the numbers of immigration judges, it takes a very long time to unwind a backlog. And that's because 
as cases get older and remain on the docket longer, they generally become more complicated. Evidence becomes stale, witnesses are hard to locate, and individual circumstances change. Maybe so much time has passed that a person is now eligible for a different status than they originally applied for. All of this, Marx says, means the longer a case sits on a docket, the longer it can take to adjudicate. And there's another issue to consider, Marx says, as more first-time immigration judges are coming on board. In all fairness to someone new coming in, they, they're entitled to have a learning curve and to take time to do it right. And with repetition, they will do it right and faster. But I would assume that that has an impact, again, just one small piece of a multifaceted puzzle. This is especially relevant in Boston, where four of the eight immigration judges were appointed within the last two and a half years. And on top of that, three of those four new judges previously worked in Boston as attorneys for Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. Susan Church, an immigration attorney in Cambridge, says that matters. Where three of the last four hires have been former prosecutors, these judges have to decline jurisdiction over any case that they have handled or worked on while they were prosecutors in that office. So it really doesn't help the backlog because then that case has to go to a different judge and start the process all over again. Former government prosecutors turned immigration judges must recuse themselves from any cases they touched as prosecutors. Same goes for former private immigration attorneys who become judges. Those cases then end up on another judge's docket. And the immigrant's court case starts all over again. It's difficult to know how often judges recuse themselves on these grounds. The Executive Office for Immigration Review, the oversight agency for the country's immigration courts, doesn't track recusals. Marks, the immigration judge in California, says the backlog reflects a fundamental imbalance. The fact that uh, resource allocations to ICE prosecutions so far outweigh the resources allocated to building the courts. Until the court system grows commensurate with the enforcement system, she says, backlogs will likely continue to rise and immigration judges will keep playing catch-up in Boston and across the country. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling in Boston. When Amazon announced this past week that they were picking two, not one, site for their HQ2, you may have thought the booming tech hub of Greater Boston would have had a shot. But alas, Amazon picked the New York and Washington metro areas to expand. The decision to snub Boston has reopened some old wounds for an area that has a long history of missed opportunities to attract large technology companies. Robert Noyce got his Ph.D. at MIT, but he picked California to launch Intel. Bill Gates, he was at Harvard when he hatched the idea that became Microsoft. Then he dropped out and started the company in Albuquerque. The list goes on. But as WBUR's Callum Borchers reports, Boston needn't feel too sorry for itself. A more recent tech company to opt out of Boston is Facebook, which Mark Zuckerberg founded in his Harvard dorm room in 2004. It's especially painful because years after moving the company to Silicon Valley, Zuckerberg said this. Honestly, if I were starting now, I just would have stayed in Boston, I think. I had a conversation with Bezos about this one time. Bezos, of course, is Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. 
Boston's habit of losing out on tech titans haunts industry insiders like Jeff Buskang, a general partner at Flybridge Capital. Boston does not seem to groom scale companies. We have not scaled many companies beyond $1 billion of revenue or $10 billion of market cap. There are exceptions, such as EMC and Akamai, and others knocking on the door. But most tech companies struggle to hit those huge numbers as standalone businesses. Just this week, Watertown software company Athena Health sold for $5.7 billion. The buyers were in New York and Silicon Valley. The deal is what venture capitalists like Busgang would call a terrific return on investment. Yet it's also evidence of Boston's glass ceiling. So what's the problem? I think it's like history. David Cancel is a co-founder of the Boston digital marketing firm Drift. He points out that there were some really big tech companies in the area before the dot-com bubble burst. Remember Digital Equipment Corporation and CMGI? We had just seen a whole wave of them, and then we spent the next decade under-investing in that ecosystem here. Now we're kind of trying to come back from that underinvestment, right? It takes a long time to build the ecosystem again. And Amazon headquarters might have helped the rebuilding process, but Jesse Murmel, president of the Alliance for Business Leadership in Boston, calls this a moment of reflection for Boston. For me, the real question is, how do we invest in the businesses and the workers that have already committed to make Massachusetts home? And I feel like by doing that, then if we decide it's what we want, we can be competitive when the next Amazon, whatever it is, some company we probably haven't even heard of yet, goes forward with an HQ2-type situation in the future. Notice the caveat, if we decide it's what we want. There's a case to be made that Boston is doing just fine, thank you very much, with a cluster of homegrown, medium-sized tech firms. Here's Chris Anderson, president of the Massachusetts High Technology Council. To me, it's, and I think to many people, it's not a big deal. We've got tons of other innovative companies in a lot of different sectors that are really driving the Massachusetts economy. And there could be more innovative companies on the way at the very sites pitched to Amazon. At Suffolk Downs, the centerpiece of Boston's HQ2 proposal, developer Tom O'Brien says he's confident he'll find other tenants. Same for Somerville Mayor Joe Curtitoni, whose city proposed a more spread-out headquarters along the Orange Line. Whether Amazon comes or not, it wasn't going to make us, and it's not going to break us. Um, you know, and uh, just in the card of the proposal we announced, we have several million square feet of projects already on the way, are permitted, or about to get on the way. And if that's not enough to comfort Bostonians feeling an especially sharp sting from losing to New York, there's always the sweet memory of last month's baseball playoffs. And that's it. The Boston Red Sox win the division series three out of four against the Yankees. And the Take that, New York. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Callum Borchers in Boston. Coming up, what Aaron Hernandez's death can tell us about the football industry. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. The life of Aaron Hernandez could have been a storybook New England tale. He was born and raised in Bristol, Connecticut, not far from the headquarters of sports giant ESPN, and rose to fame as a tight end for the New England Patriots. But after just three seasons in the NFL, he was put on trial for multiple murders and sentenced to life in prison. 
At the age of just 27, he committed suicide at a correctional center in Massachusetts. A new six-part Spotlight series from the Boston Globe explores his life, death, and legacy in articles and a podcast. The series investigates what his death can teach us about the football industry and the long-term effects of the sport on players' brains. Bob Holler is an investigative sports reporter for the Boston Globe and part of the team responsible for the Spotlight series, Gladiator, Aaron Hernandez, and Football, Inc. Bob started by telling us about Aaron Hernandez, the football player. Well, he, re- he really was a re- remarkable player from the very early age uh, that he first began playing football in uh, Bristol, Connecticut. He was a star, the greatest football player to come out of uh, Bristol, Connecticut, and worked his way up into the University of Florida. He was a Mackey Award winner as the best tight end in the country when he finishes, finished his junior year at uh, Florida. And the Patriots drafted him in the fourth round of the um, 2010 draft. He fell to the fourth round because he had character issues that he had developed in high school, the final years of high school and in um, college. But by the time he got to the NFL, he was a spectacular player, very versatile, both as a tight end and as a running back, which is unusual in the NFL. So he, he had that added dimension that NFL teams you know, really value. So... He became a star, and uh, with Rob Gronkowski, he they formed the most productive tight end tandem in NFL history. In that one season, uh, they played together and really shined. They they were together for three years, but one one particular season, they were they were uh, remarkable. And I uh, went to the Super Bowl and caught a Super Bowl touchdown pass, which is every boy's dream, I guess. You, you talk about his hometown of Bristol, Connecticut. Tell us what his childhood was like there. Well, this is one of the great surprises that, that we discovered was, you know, we, we knew the, the, the sort of the narrative that uh, developed after his death was that um, Aaron began to fall apart after his father died when he was 16. His, his father died unexpectedly of a bad medical problem after a standard hernia surgery in Bristol. But the fact is that he didn't have a, a, an Aussie and Harriet life at all. His father was brutal, uh, beat him savagely as a child. And his father was homophobic, and uh, we've learned uh, also that uh, Aaron was really exploring his sexuality at a young age. By the sixth grade, he was involved with other boys, and his father was vehemently uh, opposed to, to all that. He didn't know it at the time, but even if Aaron uh, exhibited any kind of uh, you know, feminine type of uh, instinct, he wanted, at one point he wanted to be a cheerleader, which his father you know, shot down immediately. So he's living in this, in this world where... He can't be himself, and not only that, he's living in fear, he's traumatized, also sexually molested as a child at an early age, by the age of six. So these are traumas that nobody was aware of before we started this project, except, the, the, of course, the people who were the principals in, in this. And these are the things that can shape a person's life. And don't excuse any of the things that he, uh, he did in uh, the violent crimes he committed, but they certainly uh, help explain how he became, in some ways, how he did. And he was under a lot of pressure to excel athletically. In the podcast, uh, his brother Jonathan says that my mom let it be known in an early age that if it's not for sports, you're going to be going to that community college. So there was there was real pressure for the athletics to to take over so that the boys could get out. Right. It's not only you know Bristol's Bristol's an incredible sports town. In many ways, Bristol's like a lot of small towns in in New England or small cities. You know, sort of factory towns that have faded through the years. But it's incredibly historic in terms of, you know, they've had Babe Ruth played there, Satchel Paige played there, the, the Boston Red Sox had an affiliate there for many years. So it's, it's a time where you, you aspire as an athlete to be, to be special. 
But not only that, his father played for the University of Connecticut, you know, was a, a scholarship football player there. And his brother was a star, you know, at high school and went on to UConn also on a football scholarship and was the quarterback there. So he had that pressure to go to UConn and play with his brother and sort of follow in his father's footsteps. But he, he, he blew up after his sophomore and junior years uh, in terms of talent and every major college in the, in the country wanted him. And that's why he ended up in Florida. So he has a, a football career at the University of Florida. You mentioned something that is colloquially used often when talking about NFL players or players coming out of college. Analysts will say that he had character issues. What exactly did the character issues at the University of Florida mean? He had seriously uh, involved in, uh, in marijuana, sort of a chronic marijuana smoker. He had only been sanctioned once down there, suspended once for it. But it was commonly known, and there also were concerns about his ties to the criminals back in Bristol, Connecticut. Uh, on top of that, there was, uh, within within months of getting to Florida, when he should have still been in high school, he was in a bar in, in Gainesville and, and punched a bar manager so badly that he ruptured his eardrum, sort of sucker punched him over a, a minor bar tab dispute. Uh, later, he was uh, in, a, in a car. It was, it was in a confrontation where one of his friends uh, had a chain ripped off, one of his college friends, now, now an NFL player, Mike Pouncey, had his uh, gold chain ripped off. And soon after that, the person who they believed took the chain was shot, or one of his associates was shot. So he's, he's in the fringe of this. He's not involved in it, but he's in the fringe of it. And so scouts realized that this guy had some problems, and that's why so many teams took, took a pass on him. I mean, he was... The, the NFL teams had 112 chances to choose him in the draft, and none did until the Patriots took him with 113th. And that's really one of the stories of the success of the New England Patriots. It's the ability to find the player in the fourth round who fell out of favor for whatever reason. And, of course, the fact that he gets here to New England is the next part of the story. I actually want to play some tape from Greg Bedard, who covered Hernandez as a football columnist for the Boston Globe and Sports Illustrated. Here he is from the, uh, from the podcast. I think the worst thing to happen to Aaron Hernandez was that the Patriots drafted him. I think that this story turns out a lot differently if he's, say, in Seattle or San Francisco or someplace just out of reach of Bristol, Connecticut. So, Bob, why is that? Well, uh, it's echoed by his close friends, uh, some of his close friends, uh, childhood friends as well. I mean, because he was so close. I mean, it's a two-hour drive from all the turmoil and, and, the, and, and the criminal life there in, in Bristol that he was associated with. And those guys were, were around him all the time. And it's, you know, it's not clear that they would have been with him if he was playing in San Francisco or Seattle or L.A. They were his running mates. And uh, th- those are the guys he got into serious trouble with. So I mean, he, he went to the Patriots and, and his, after he had already been involved in the shooting of and the murder of two young men here in Boston, he went to the, he went to the Patriots, the coach Bill Belichick, and said, I, I want to go west. I, I want to go to a, to a West Coast team. I want to get out of here. I, I, or trade me or release me. And the Patriots said no. They had already invested $41 million in him over a long-term contract and with a $12.5 million signing bonus. Just uh, – months earlier. So they, uh, the, you know, players are commodities in, in the NFL. They can be discarded easily. But if you're worth that kind of money, the team is going to be very reluctant to part with you. And in this case, he stayed uh, involved with his buddies down in Bristol and, uh, and was with two of them when he murdered Odin Lloyd. 
So tell us about that and tell us about what landed uh, Aaron Hernandez in jail. So that was it. You know, we, we'll never know. This is um, the great mystery of a lot of this is the, these, these people were killed, those two young men, uh, Cape Verdean immigrants in Boston, and Odin Lloyd, a young football player, semi-pro football player here in Boston. They died for no reason, really. I mean, there were, we've never really discovered any legitimate reason why Aaron Hernandez would be angry at these guys. You know, maybe a spilled drink here, maybe maybe an insult there. Uh, and so it's it's there's something wrong with him <laughs> character wise is it is it was it the cte that damaged his brain and and affected his ability to reason to ha- to control his impulses to control his rage or was it the way he was brought up was it the way his father said you know nobody disrespects you nobody nobody tries you you know nobody challenges you you step up and you take care of business you, so you don't know but for no good reason three men died and he ended up in prison and um uh, we know what happened there but before his suicide, there's actually a really telling piece of tape that I want to play, and it says something about maybe his state of mind or what happens when he gets away from the life that caused him so many problems. He, he seems to have found some peace in jail. Here's a clip from one of his phone calls in September of 2014. You have to find inner peace to be happy. Nothing you do is going to make you happy. Nothing you get is going to make you happy. If you're not happy with happy inside, then you mean like... You'll never be happy. Like just like just like me, like by having money, like I still was miserable. You know what I mean, having everything in the world, I still was miserable. You know what I mean, yeah. You know, we thought that uh, Aaron was le- was leading a double life, and he certainly was. He was, you know, tr- a star football player at the same time living this criminal uh, under underworld life as well. Uh, but he was living another life too, and that was the life of a of a person whose sexuality he had to hide from. You know the the football players around him. The, you know that culture just he never could be himself in that culture. Couldn't be that. Couldn't be that way in prison. Couldn't be who he was in so many ways. So he was obviously deeply conflicted. I mean, he he, he was devastated that his fiance found out that he was you know his sexuality wasn't what she thought it was, and uh, and so he's tormented uh, inside. And again, none of this excuses what happened, but it it does give a little more of explanation to it. You mentioned CTE before, and this is another one of the potential explanations. CTE is this progressive degenerative condition that has been found in the brains of of many football players now uh, who've sadly passed away. W- what can you tell us about CTE and Aaron Hernandez and what it what it may have done to him? Well, I know I've spent much of the last few years uh, writing about CTE and about uh, players who have been afflicted by it and their families and, and the toll it takes not only on the players but those around them uh, because they develop uh, very uh, radical changes behavior-wise in some cases. Uh, you know, I've talked to the wives of players who died, and before they died, they, they, for many, many years, for most of their lives, were, you know, kind, gentle guys. I mean, of course they're football players, but off the field— they're not. And yet, in the final months or years of their lives, they undergo changes and they become violent, you know, over nothing. And, and eventually, they, they, in some cases, committed suicide at a, at a young age. And uh, very much like Aaron Hernandez did, um, you know, the, he wasn't the same person he was earlier in his life, just like Junior Seau and so many others that... Um, are, affi- are, are, are afflicted by CTE and go through these behavioral changes as well as all the 
um, health changes that uh, devastate them. Why did you call this project Gladiator? Well, there was a much discussion about that, to tell you the truth. We, we wanted, we were afraid that, that, to some degree that, that the, a gladiator is seen as a hero or, or a martyr. And that's not really uh, what we are striving for here. But it's, it's a gladiator sport. Um, it's, it's as in the old days when they, you know, of course, when they filled coliseums to, to watch these guys fight and uh, fight for their lives. In some ways, these guys are doing the same thing today. They're where millions of people are paying to watch them, uh, and they're going into these sports and, and they're putting their lives on the line. Um, they didn't know that for a lot of years. They knew they were their knees were gone and their backs were gone, but they didn't know they were going to lose their minds as well. Uh, a last thing for you, Bob. At the end of the first episode of this podcast, you you have a reflection on whether or not your grandson should should play football after all that you've learned. Tell us more about that and tell us about what you've thought about the sport that, that you've covered now that you've learned so much about what it can do to people? Well, it's been a, it's been a, a sort of a painful evolution in some ways. I grew up, uh, you know, loving the Patriots. I grew up, I'm, I'm a man of certain age that uh, I, I would follow them and watch them at Fenway Park and Harvard Stadium and Boston University before they had a home. And, uh, and uh, so I, I love those guys. And some of those guys I've seen since then and I've talked to them since then and players who played for the Patriots in the Super Bowls in nineteen eight in the nineteen eighty six, and I and the, some of those guys are so badly damaged their brains they some of them can't I mean they can't find their way home I know at least two guys who cannot find their way home sometimes because their brains are so badly damaged from the from playing football and so sadly I you know I, my son my my grandson uh, plays flag football now he loves it he's thrown a touchdown pass and he wants to play tackle football with his friends and. You know, we, we, we collect trading cards together and play fantasy football together. But I just, it, honestly, I just don't see it. I, I can't imagine putting a kid into a gladiator sport at that, that young age. I think I'm not alone. I think it's throughout American culture now. People are rethinking uh, what, what age people should, you know, young children should play football. Bob Holler is an investigative sports reporter for the Boston Globe and part of the team responsible for the Spotlight series Gladiator, Aaron Hernandez, and Football, Inc. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, John. You can find a link to the full series about Aaron Hernandez at nextnewengland.org. Coming up, how regulations meant to protect fish are hurting small-scale fishermen. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. The waters around New England once teemed with cod, but the story for the past few decades has been one of overfishing and a decline. In 2010, new regulations were put in place to protect the fish that were left. But these regulations have made it hard for small-scale fishermen to make a living. Producer Matt Frassica introduces us to one of them in his podcast, The Briny. His story explores the unintended consequences of conservation. Here's Matt. Watch your step get on. Earlier this year, I met this fisherman in Maine named Tim Ryder. A little noisy in here, but this is Finley under one. Got the engine running. Just charging the batteries, getting ready to do what we do. Shut it off so you can actually hear a little bit here. 
Tim's a tall, athletic-looking guy in his 40s. His boat, the Finlander One, is small for a commercial fishing boat. This is a 36 Northern Bay, so it's 36 by, I think, 13 feet wide at the widest part. And this is powered by a 375-horse John Deere, so we cruise at like 16, 17 knots, which is quick for a commercial boat. That speed lets him get to good fishing spots far offshore. Most important part right here. Yeah. Holy love, right about now. <laughs> he would die. Oh yeah, a little Cinderella right here. <laughs> so this is how we roll out right here. Totally. Sunrise, beautiful sunrise. Nothing like some 80s hair music to go with it. I love it. But when the weather kicks up in the North Atlantic, being out in that little boat is not the safest. Yeah, I mean, the last <laughs> the last trip we went out, it was, uh, boy, it was a white-knuckle ride in. You know, boats are boats, and they're not surfboards. And my little boat was doing 23 knots with no throttle coming down a wave with very little control, and that's actually a dangerous situation because if you put the you put the nose of the, the bow of the boat into the next wave, you'll go ass kettle over backwards. His business is a super small operation. Just a few people going out to catch fish. We catch cod, pollock, haddock, cusk on rod and reel, uh, all by hand. He recently added another boat, Finlander 2, that catches different species with a net. But for the past few years, all the fish he's caught has been with rod and reel. But even still, Tim manages to bring in a lot of fish. This is our office. This boat caught 200-ish thousand pounds of fish this year. And all those fish get treated on the boat. We bleed our fish right away, we brine our fish, we get a really nice, colorful fish that's like super chilled right through. Those fish are on our customer's plate 24 to 48 hours after swimming around. Most fishing boats in New England are bigger. They go out for longer. So the fish they bring back has been on ice for a while. Weeks, sometimes. Tim and his employees run their own distribution company called New England Fishmongers that brings their fish directly to high-end restaurants. Those restaurants pay a bit more for Tim's fish because it's so fresh. And because they know they're getting super local fish caught by this sort of artisanal process. That kind of freshness is unparalleled. That's Evan Mallet, a chef who owns a couple of fancy restaurants in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Belfast, Maine. Evan says the fish he gets from Tim is better than anything he can get from a larger distributor. The way that the fish on that boat is handled not only ensures a higher quality, but enhances the shelf life of that fish in my restaurant. Like a lot of small business owners, Tim struggles to make the financial side work. He catches a lot of fish, it's not that. And he's got plenty of customers willing to pay for his premium product. The problem is, he has to pay someone else for every fish he catches. To understand why, you have to back up to 1976 and the law that governs fishing in the United States, the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act. We call it the Fish Bill because half of us don't remember the name. That's Niaz Dori. My name is Niaz Dori. I'm the coordinating director for Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance. Before 1976, most fishermen in the U.S. were small-scale operators like Tim. And they were having trouble competing with big industrial fishing operations coming from overseas. But Magnuson-Stevens, or the Fish Bill, or whatever you want to call it, changed that. The bill closed U.S. waters to foreign fishing boats and encouraged U.S. fishermen to invest in bigger, more efficient boats that could catch more and more fish. 
Paul Molyneux watched all this happen firsthand. He's an author and former commercial fisherman. And Paul got started fishing just as Magnus and Stevens was going into effect. In 1977, there was a new boat being launched in the Northeast every four days. So it was perfect time to, for a guy coming from the suburbs of Philadelphia to get into the fishing business because, you know, they were taking anyone. And that's basically, you know, and I'd lied my way aboard. You've been fishing? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, with my grandfather in a pond. <laughs> Paul loved fishing, but he didn't like what he saw on the big draggers, fishing boats that use trawl nets to catch pretty much anything in their path. So we, we got into hake that were just on the margin of being, you know, market size. And we were bringing over huge bags of hake and throwing like half of it overboard and just floating around the boat, just like, just was carpeted with them. And I thought, you know, this is not, uh, this doesn't make any sense. What Paul was seeing wasn't an isolated incident. Destructive and wasteful fishing methods were becoming regular practice. We provided loans to fishermen to scale up without knowing what the ecological boundaries are going to be. All this industrialization has brought this ecosystem to a place where it's in danger. But Magnus and Stevens also set up regional councils made up of fishermen, scientists, and regulators. And these regional councils essentially develop what the management uh, schemes are going to be. The councils set the rules and limits on fishing activity. But by the mid-2000s, it was clear that the rules weren't working. What's often known as the tragedy of the commons. If you've got this big pool of stuff and everybody wants to go after it, how do you manage that? In 2010, the New England Council put in place a new set of regulations. This new system gets called the sector system. In the sector system, scientists and regulators decide the sustainable catch for each species. Every year, they say, you can catch this many million pounds of haddock, this many million pounds of cod, flounder, whatever. And then each fisherman gets a fraction of that total. That's their catch share. It's kind of... This cap-and-trade approach. Cap-and-trade, like the U.S. does for some kinds of pollution. There's a cap on the total amount, but fishermen can trade their share of the total among themselves. The idea is that if you as a fisherman own a 1% stake in the flounder stock, you'll want that stock to grow so that you can catch more fish. Ownership promotes stewardship. That's Seth Masinko. So they think if you own it, you'll take care of it. He studies fisheries law and management at the University of Rhode Island. And he is not a fan of the sector system. People in New England just didn't know what they were getting into. Professor Masinko has studied fisheries regulations like this around the world. And he says some of them work well and some of them work not so well. And then all the, you know, the results are not all bad, contrary to what, you know, what some people say. Um, but the results, both good and bad, are, are predictable. First of all, go back to the part about each fisherman having a share of the total catch. How do you decide how to divvy up those shares? In New England, the council debated it for a long time, and this is what they came up with. The size of your share was based on how much fish you brought in historically. And that tends to favor the big operators who are responsible for overfishing in the first place. When 
quotas under these catch shares are assigned to those who caught the most, those small scale folks are going to get the small piece of the pie. But the small scale folks and the medium scale folks is a much smaller ecological footprint than the larger folks have had. Whoever had the most invested in the fishery and caught the most fish got the most fish. So the ones who had done the most damage got rewarded the most. The share of the catch each fisherman got was based on what they caught between the years 1996 and 2006. How do they choose those years? It's always a rigged game picking the, the qualifying years. It, 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 this is a totally arbitrary and political decision. It leads to consolidation in the fishery, which we've seen. Pat Shepard is the manager of Tim Ryder's sector, which means he takes care of the paperwork for the fishermen. The small-scale guys uh, can't afford to operate in the fishery, so they, they either sell their permits to uh, one of the larger-scale operators who has deep enough pockets to buy it, um, or they just surrender it. The number of active groundfish boats in New England has gone down, way down. From 571 boats in 2009, before sectors were introduced, to 307 in 2014, the last year data are available for. That's a 46% drop over five years. And that consolidation has hit small-scale fishermen the hardest. That brings us back to Tim Ryder. In 1996, I was running cross-country and track and field for the University of New Mexico. Um, and we joke about it. Amanda Parks, who works the business with me, I think she was three. So Tim, because he doesn't have any history... He has to pay other fishermen for their share of the catch. If you don't have enough quota, you have to go and lease it from someone that does, that's not fishing, that's not using those fish. The price of quota varies depending on the total cap that regulators put in place for that species. So, for example, cod. That's one of the species that was hit hardest by industrial fishing, and it hasn't rebounded. So the total cap for everyone is low. And if there isn't much to go around... That means buying a share of that catch is not going to be cheap. This is like a stock market, right? So when there's not a lot of something or it's in high demand, what does it do? It goes up in price. So cod is leasing 3 to $4 a pound right now. Cod sells on the open market for less than $3 a pound. We like to call that a choke species. So basically, if you catch cod, you lose money. You, if you can only sell the fish for less than $3 a pound, why, why would anybody pay more than three dollars for the permission to lease it like what what yeah how does that how does that get work? set well, you have to have you can't leave the dock without having some allocation of cod because they know you're going to catch cod even if you're avoiding cod you put out a net in the ocean you can't control which fish are going to swim into it you can try based on the depth and what part of the ocean you're in but you can never be certain so that means Every time a fisherman like Tim leaves the dock, he has to have a quota for cod so that when he pulls his net up and he's caught one, he won't be breaking the law. But the high cost of quota creates a perverse incentive. Here is Ben Martens, the executive director of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. So if you go out fishing and you're going to be targeting pollock or haddock and you're catching cod as a piece of that day out on the water, there's no incentive for you to land it. And in fact, there's an incentive for you to throw it back into the ocean. Throwing dead fish back in the ocean is called discarding. 
and it's against the rules. So no one will admit to doing it. But everybody I talk to acknowledges that it happens. You know, large cod are like three-ish bucks. Market cod or medium-sized cod are $2. Smaller ones are less than two bucks. What are you going to keep? If you don't have an observer, you're kicking the little stuff over and keeping large cod. You never see very much small cod on the auction. They just disappear. They don't exist. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration puts observers on fishing boats to try to discourage rule-breaking, or at least to document it. They take that data and extrapolate it out amongst the fleet to determine how many fish are going back into the ocean. But only 15% of fishing trips actually get an observer. 15% is just way too low of a number to get accurate data. And all of the, the research that's being done right now is showing that there's major bias effects that are taking place on those trips versus others. The sector system has been in place for eight years now. So has it succeeded in protecting vulnerable fish stocks? According to NOAA, the results are mixed. Some types of fish that had been in decline before sectors are starting to come back, like haddock and redfish. But others aren't doing so well, like cod. Cod stocks have actually declined since sectors were introduced. What I've seen is a reduction in the number of vessels and not an increase in the ecological output of the ecosystem. In fact, I don't know the last time we heard good news from the Gulf of Maine. Uh, what we hear all the time is we need to cut back, we need to cut back, we need to cut back. And so um, to me, it hasn't worked. None of this is new. Cod stocks have been on the decline in New England since the 1980s. And the causes are complex, from a decline in the kinds of fish cod like to eat to climate change. And Consolidation first got going back when the cod stocks began to crash. Still, critics of the sector system say there should have been caps on the total amount of the catch that any one fisherman can own. They had the opportunity to put controls on this program. So, for example, in Alaska, they have a 1% cap on ownership in the halibut fishery. At the time, they laughed about the Alaskans doing this. Now, the Alaska program looks like the poster child for socially responsible catch shares. But, but in New England, they, they elected not to do anything. For me, it's all about scale. Pat Shepard again, the manager of Tim Ryder's sector. You keep it small scale, you reduce the impact to the environment, you can still catch fish, um, and 10 small-scale boats... Uh, provide for many more families than one huge boat. Ten small-scale boats also contribute to their local economies. Towns up and down the coast have felt the economic effects of the dwindling New England fishing fleet. The effect on communities can, in some cases, be even more devastating than the effect on individuals because individuals can move. So you, you, you get consolidated, you're, you're out of the industry. Well, you know, the theory always was that you would move and you'd you know, go to Dayton and make tires and the United States would be better off. Communities don't move. So communities get stranded by consolidation. So when I come in here, I spend my money at Jackson's Hardware, Kittery. Tim Ryder. <clears throat> you know, we get, I grab a sandwich down the street from the local sandwich store. I get my fuel here at the marina from Butch. And we try to get what we can locally because it's where we live. Buying local might also be the answer for keeping small-scale fishermen afloat. In America, I think we've gotten really lazy about our food. We want it prepackaged. We want it portioned. We want it vacuum-sealed, frozen. Uh, we want a YouTube video to show us how to cook it. 
how many people do you know that will butcher a whole fish at home? We need to get back to that. Going to meet a, a boat at the dock, getting a couple of fresh fish off of them, and uh, that's what will secure a fair price for the fishermen that are that are catching our seafood, and uh, it'll it'll connect us a lot better to what we're eating because we know where it came from. Tim Ryder knows that there needs to be limits in place to protect the health of the fish stocks. But the way the sector system was set up, it favors big operators who were active decades ago. The way Tim sees it, that means in order to fish, he has to pay someone else not to fish. A permit that we lease most of our fish off this year, uh, we paid that individual over $75,000 for not fishing. It, it's a fail for a small business owner. I'll tell you right now, like we, it's a fail. Basically, the old people that are leasing fish need to get out of the way and let someone else do the job. This piece was produced by Matt Frassica for his podcast, The Briny, which explores stories from the ocean. You can find a link to the full podcast and more of Matt's work at nextnewengland.org. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Talarski, and our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. We had help this week from Mike Garth. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. And thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, The Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio. 